You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, a friend of mine calls it, the sh- you know, carry the musical, the show that never dies. And I think that's true. Chapter 9. Back from the Dead. Hello, friends of Carrie. If you've come this far, we assume you're enjoying our next level analysis of Broadway's turkiest of turkeys, Carrie the Musical. That's the song and dance spectacular based on Stephen King's blood-soaked novel. I'm Holly. And I'm Chris. Got any inspiring quotes for us? Funny you should ask. Uh, Stephen Sondheim once said that musicals are never truly finished, only abandoned. Mm. It had taken 24 years for Carrie to be brought back from the dead, but the off-Broadway revival was just the fuse for an explosion of major new productions of the show. In the years since Carrie reappeared in New York, hundreds of high schools and community groups around the world have staged the long-awaited, licensed version of the show, so much so that the songs are now well-known staples amongst musical theatre fans. The new cast recording has over 2 million plays on Spotify and, unlike the old days, it doesn't take long to find all shapes and sizes of different productions all over YouTube. Brave new world. I mean, there's even an episode of a mainstream TV show based on it and we'll get to that shortly. Not to mention, of course, the Emmy Award winning series that Netflix will be commissioning based on this podcast. Well, yeah, obviously. Will I be allowed to play myself? You'll need to audition. Thank you. In this episode, we're zooming in on the three major productions that were staged in the wake of the off-Broadway revival and speaking to some of the cast and creatives to find out how they put their own unique stamp on this ever-changing tale. Um, Actually, I was uh, in one of the first readings of the revival of Carrie with Stafford Arima and, you know, it was me and Karen Olivo playing uh, those two adult roles and then, you know, wonderful cast with Derek Klena and a bunch of other wonderful uh, Chrissy Altimore. That's Lewis Hobson, who in 2012 was based in New York as an actor. As we heard, the cast of the Revival Workshop and Off-Broadway Run were heavily involved in the rewrite of the show. Lewis became close with the writers, and when he relocated to Seattle to run a theatre company, shifting his focus towards directing, he became interested in resurrecting the show in the Northwest. The project for me started with casting, and we had some wonderful options in Seattle. Um, but I'd always seen Alice in, in that role um, of the mother. He's talking about the incredible Alice Ripley, the Tony Award-winning star of Next to Normal, Sideshow and American Psycho. We stan. Am I saying that right? So we work quite a lot together and I, I just love her. She's uh, the most exciting performer 
I've ever worked with on stage and just such a open and genuine and giving human being. She's always somebody that you want in a room if you want to make something happen. Alice signed up immediately. Shows with a specific, very nuanced tone seem to be shows that I'm attracted to unconsciously. And a show like Carrie fits fits the 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 list of like sideshow and and next to normal and even something like Rocky Horror where you have to get the tone right. Seattle native Keaton Whitaker played Carrie. Lewis called her one day with a big question. So we had coffee and he was like, I want to do Carrie and like I want you to do it. And I was like, what? All right. Like I was like, that sounds crazy. And he was like, I don't know where he was going to do it. We didn't have a space. Like, he doesn't have a theater company. Like, I was just like, okay, like, yeah, I mean, if that happens, like, that sounds great. But, like, you know, let me know when it does. And then, like, literally a year later, he was like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it at the Moore, and I'm going to have Alice play Margaret. And I was like, whoa, sick, okay. Um, and then it really – then we really ended up uh, really doing it. She has a fantastic voice and just a wonderful presence, and um, that sort of started the process of, like, do we have a carry in Seattle? And we definitely did with Keaton. The new me. They might even say, look, it's Carrie. And finally, I Keaton was an amazing Carrie. Wow, she was terrific. The whole cast was. And do you know what? It's just strange and I think really neat and funny. At the same time, when people ask me my, fav- this, my favorite show I've ever done, my favorite role, it's Margaret. Margaret and Carrie. Yeah, I think that would be my favorite because it was just so fun there, it, there was no work involved it was fun and it was really a crazy kick to just pretend like you're like you're that character because in real life i'm probably never going to stab somebody in the back with a butcher knife probably not ever going to happen so i get to experience what it's like on stage we have it on tape now so, yeah exactly you know, evidence, <laughs> evidence evidence yeah <laughs> we'll destroy it for you don't worry. <laughs> Whereas Stafford Arima's off-Broadway production had told Carrie's story through the lens of bullying, Lewis approached the show with a desire to explore the abusive parent and child relationship. And we kind of had this moment at the end of the piece where she came down uh, that we kind of did a very sparse uh, you know, uh, production and she came down these stairs with this big knife and like she'd prepared uh, to sort of like, um, there was something ritualistic about it and it was very frightening. And I was more interested in trying to make the show frightening um, and dealing with the psychological terror of it than I was necessarily with bullying. Um, and it was interesting, the audience reaction uh, was maybe not what I was expecting. I, I think when it was first announced that we were doing Carrie, I think people thought it was gonna be like uh, with drag performers that it was gonna be um, cheesy, right? And and I wasn't interested in doing that because just go do it at a drag bar then. Um, I actually wanted to try to attempt to make theater out of it. Um, so that's kind of where we started. It was, it was really interesting to see the audience reaction, what their expectation was. Originally planned as an intimate chamber piece, much like the version off-Broadway, a change of circumstances meant that, once again, Carrie was scaled back up. It was such a stressful production because we had originally planned on doing uh, Carrie in our small, like 300 seat space and make it very sort of claustrophobic, environmental and very iris in. That was the original conceit. And that um, we'd have a lot more control over things like the blood. And it was just going to be more of um, uh, almost an environmental idea. 
because again, I was really interested in, in, you know, it's really hard to be scary in theater. It's really hard, hard, hard to scare people in theater. Um, but we wanted to create an atmosphere where that was potentially possible. Um, we actually ended up losing our space on Capitol Hill in Seattle. Uh, and we had to move the production uh, to the Moore Theater in Seattle, which was a 1200 seat space. So the concept, you know, we tried to maintain as much as we could, um, but it was a much different venue uh, to achieve kind of what we set out to achieve. However, it turned out the new location was perfect for the show. We got to do it in this really awesome old theater called The Moor in Seattle. And it's like huge and really haunted apparently. And like very like really cool for like the aesthetic of our production. It was like, it's just like, and also gigantic, like a huge theater. As with the off-Broadway production, Lewis and his team were faced with the task of repositioning Carrie in the eyes of the public. And it was interesting. The audience reaction uh, was maybe not what I was expecting. I, I think when it was first announced that we, we were doing Carrie, I think people thought it was going to be like uh, with drag performers, that it was going to be um, cheesy, right? And, and I wasn't interested in doing that because uh, just go do it at a drag bar then. Um, I actually wanted to try to attempt to make theatre out of it. Lewis relished the opportunity to mix fresh young talent with Broadway veterans like Alice Ripley and Kendra Kassebaum, who played Miss Gardner. And it was a wonderful group of young actors who a lot of them have gone on to be you know, pretty successful in regional and, and New York theatre. So it was kind of one of those wonderful sort of intersections of, of uh, you know, these wonderful veteran Broadway actors with young actors. That's what I was really interested in from just from a uh, sort of philosophical standpoint of um, I always grew the most when I was working with people that were really good. um, And I wanted to give these young actors the same opportunity to work alongside, you know, Tony winner and, you know, um, you know, veteran actors. So. Alice Ripley's favorite part of the show is the title song Carrie's big. I want number at the start of the show. If I were 25 or something like that, I probably would sing that song a lot, but it doesn't really, it doesn't make sense for me to sing it out of context because that's not the role I would play in the show. But wow, what a terrific song. I tried singing it for a while. Um, doesn't anybody ever get it right, Carrie? When will they remember I am Carrie White? Carrie. She screams about how, like, they can't even get my name right. They can't even call me by my name. And she finally says, I've had enough at the very beginning of the show. I love that number. Was it hard to find a motivation for the way Margaret treats her daughter? The moment um, when there's no one, you know, when Margaret's up in the room, she tries to talk Carrie out of going to the prom. And she tries because she doesn't want Carrie to have to go through what she goes through, including being murdered by her own mother. But she can't tell her any of this. Uh, Why? I don't know. You'd have to ask Margaret. I don't know why. But Carrie goes. Because Carrie's finally at that point toward the end of the show, right before, you know, that's how it's so tragic, right? It's ironic because right before she gets killed and everything awful happens to Carrie, she feels strong and alive and fierce. Then I'm left alone in the bathroom then with the hairbrush looking at myself and in the mirror and I'm thinking, you know, I sing the song When There's No One. And that's the moment where Margaret's going, you know, where's my, where's my dance? Why can't I, where's my boyfriend? Because I I think Margaret's life was hell. That's why she turned into a beast. Because kids aren't born bestial. They're they're taught to be that way, you know? Don't you think? 
I know. Can you believe it's a musical? It's the question we've all been asking. All of us, like heavy, heavy subject matter, is like da 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 da. She also recalls her final scene, dying after Carrie stops her heart, and drawing inspiration from the iconic film performance of Piper Laurie. I do remember dying with my eyes open, and, and you, the first thing you asked me was, you know, where did I get my inspiration, or did I start from scratch? And Piper Laurie dies with her eyes open. And she dies like, you know, ah, ah, like it's pleasurable, like it feels incredible, um, like, like she's having the best pleasure of her life when she dies. Um, and so I kind of stole that that take and I died with my eyes open and somehow I was able to do it because I wear contacts. I could, I faced downstage and stared at the back of the orchestra for the whole rest of the show, which is really just like four minutes of the, oh, everybody comes on and sings this beautiful song. My, that's probably my favorite song in the show, the last song. And I would just stare and, you know, I, a tear would always roll out of my eye because that song always makes me cry. Interestingly, Alice placed a lot of focus on the imagery of female blood in the show. That show challenges us to look at the language that we have around around that and to to look at how we see blood. Because, you know, when I was in Buenos Aires, I was surprised. I was pleasantly just gutted with joy when I noticed that Mary is red. Like, she's in red everywhere. Mother Mary... It was only when she came to the you know, it was only when she was brought over here by a certain church that she became blue, and she looks dead. So why are we? Yeah, why are we denied? Why are we denied our flow? I mean, without that, people can't be born. Do you think? Isn't that a little weird? People are uncomfortable with blood. People are uncomfortable with the power of femininity, honestly, and I think that that is why. Uh, it's sort of come back into being re-examined. Lewis agrees that this feminist angle could be one of the reasons Carrie is being reassessed. I think it's because it's about women, because it's um, about this power that awakens in this girl who's just gotten her period. I think that there's something there that's worth exploring and examining that maybe was... um, kind of kitschy and interesting maybe in the when it came out but i think now now i think that we can re-examine it with you know uh the last several decades kind of behind us to go you know let's not dismiss this let's not um trivialize this um and make it something something sort of kitschy uh there's actually something there Meanwhile, in California, preparation was underway for another very different production. Whereas the New York revival and the Seattle production had been fairly traditional, minimal stagings, director Brady Schwind had other ideas. I had seen the 2012 production and I had my own opinions about it. And um, I basically went back to them and said, I'd be interested in particular exploring this kind of as like an immersive theatre piece because that at that time in particular was a real buzzword and I thought this would be such a natural piece for a kind of immersive approach because you for immersive theater you always want a subject that everyone can tap into and sort of the brilliance of Carrie is that everyone has had a high school experience and by and large for all of us it's the most terrifying experience of our lives and I thought if you could tap into that you could create a a sort of um, very visceral experience for an audience that was appealing to me. 
Brady knew that the writing team had been deliberately reserved about the scale of the show in New York, which had been directed by Stafford Arima. The off-Broadway production, what it did is it allowed the authors to revisit the material. Stafford, who's the most, I think you've talked to Stafford, I mean, he's the most warm, zen person. He created a safe environment for them to revisit the material. And I think that they kind of had a wise idea that if they could shrink the material down to its bare bones, it could always be blown back up again, but it would give them a chance to make sure that the script itself was what they wanted it to be. Stafford's production had been small and stark, doing away with the realistic blood and overblown special effects that, despite the creative team's best intentions, had greatly hindered the 1988 original. I thought what Stafford did was he was able to kind of ground it in a realism. But what I was interested in doing was exploring the piece in a more grandly operatic theatrical way, which is what I think it is. You know, to me, I understand the approach to say, let's do Carrie without blood and and real special effects so that we are focusing on the script and on the score. But I, I come from the brand of theater that more is more. And I thought that that's what this, I thought that that's what this needed. Once again, Dean Pitchford, Michael Gore and Larry Cohen opened themselves up to further work on Carrie. The, The thing that was really interesting about the guys is that they, they are so bright and they have spent so much time ruminating on Carrie that anything you can possibly think of or question, they have an answer to, you know, I mean, they've gone over it all a gazillion times, why this is there, why that's there. It began this actually like a kind of long courtship where the guys, you know, had kind of been through Carrie twice. They had done the Broadway production and then they had done the off-Broadway production. And then there, now there was this third person that was kind of coming and saying, I want to do I want to do a third iteration of the show that's incorporating that, but it's also um, some new stuff as well. So how do you make an immersive version of Carrie? Throw tampons at people from the box office? I don't think it was that immersive. (laughs) The minute to me you put Carrie and Margaret in a super realistic space, wearing really super realistic clothing the material almost felt silly to me. It was like, it's kind of like when you take Sweeney Todd and you put it in these realistic tiny little rooms, it feels weird. I thought, you know, there's a theatricality to the piece. It is operatic. And I, I just, I think Carrie needs that. I think it's at its most, it, it has to ride this very careful divide of being absolutely real and yet having a larger-than-life theatricality. When I began describing what I wanted as an immersive sort of experience, Larry and Michael, as they were recounting what drew them to to musicalize Carrie anyway, was these these moments they saw in their head of like a light bulb exploding over an audience or things like, they realized that they would always sort of envision as an immersive theater piece in the back of their head. And luckily, they agreed that more is more. The production was staged in the Californian city of La Mirada and later revived in downtown L.A. The audience found themselves in a distinctly non-theatrical environment. You're invited to a night you'll never forget. There's a spot downtown we dare you to explore. A place so terrifying it will shake you to your core. was 
you know, resembling, I would say, a high school gymnasium. The audience sat on wood bleachers that were on two sides. And then sort of the, the I don't know, the, the theatrical coup of our production was that a percentage of the audience sat on bleachers that moved. And they moved around throughout the performance and the space was reconfigured um, based on that. So, and then when we moved downtown to the Los Angeles theater, we were in an old movie palace and we kind of ripped out all the seats and again, built a sort of black box uh, that we could kind of create a, a hall of mirrors, if you will, to sort of tell the story. We had it set up so that every room that you walked into was like a different setting within, out of, out of the book or out of the film. Kayla Parker played Sue Snell. So you walk into a room and it's the locker room and there's tampons all over the floor and you see like Carrie White eat shit like written on the walls. And then you walk into another room and you're at, you know, you're, you're surrounded by all the pigs. You're at the farm, you know, and... and dead pigs. Dead pigs. <laughs> dead pig. <laughs> Emily Lopez played Carrie. She and Kayla ended up sharing an apartment for several years after the show. Sharing with each other or a dead pig? Both. We took uh, one of the dead pigs and, and took it home to our apartment on closing. And it stayed in our apartment until we moved out. Best friends ep ever. In fact... Brady felt that the dynamic between Carrie and Sue was key to the success of this show. What I what I particularly wanted to explore was the duality between those characters. And in fact, in earlier, when we were exploring doing this as an immersive theater piece and how balls to the walls we could go, there was one version that the authors and I explored that would have been a true like sleep no more experience where the show would have been parallel tracks and the audience would have gone on two tracks. And one basically would be seeing the point of view of the story from Sue and one would be seeing the point of view from Carrie. And at one point in the middle of the show, they would switch roles. The nature of the production meant it was technically complex and unpredictable, particularly the moving banks of seats known as pods. We were in, I mean, we were in positions where like we'd walk into tech rehearsal like the week of previews and we didn't know if the pods were a go or not because the wheel broke or we couldn't choreograph this one to move out of the way for this one to swing in, you know? It was like, I mean, it was just, it was it was magic. I don't know how we did it, but we did it. It's just insane. I think everyone ended up kind of having to trust me as a director because nobody had any idea if any of this would work. And they, <laughs> including the pods, all of it. I mean, it really, nobody knew if any of it would actually work. So we were doing a lot of different things and we were experimenting a lot. And, you know, that's kind of just that energy you have like being, in sometimes like in high school or community theater in college like you just start experimenting and it's like cool and you feel edgy and like you're like hell yeah I'm an artist with Brady I think something that was unanimous was all of us felt completely safe and we felt comfortable doing something crazy and falling straight on our asses but also standing back up and saying okay well that shit didn't work let's try this now the destruction is particularly impressive in this production with pyrotechnics video walls and even a terrifying aerial stunt for the performer playing chris that was so crazy so crazy to watch yeah she flew backwards and flipped i think she did a whole flip too over the audience's heads like right over one thing that was really important to me was this idea of dangerous theater. You know, when you go back to Stephen King's book, it was so visceral. And it was, you know, I thought everything visceral, whereas the off-Broadway production, sort of nothing was was there. There was no blood. There was no nudity in the shower scene, none of that. I kind of said, particularly because it's an immersive piece and the audience is so close, 
we're going to have water. There's going to be nudity. There's going to be blood. There's going to be everything that makes this an uncomfortable experience for the audience as well as entertaining. I just, I thought if we were going to go for it in this approach, you just had to fully commit. And luckily I had actors that would do it. I mean, Emily was in particular just fearless. I mean, <laughs> there was nothing that I would ask of Emily that she wouldn't do, whether it was being you know, nude with blood on her two feet away from an audience member or, I mean, the blood falling on her. That's the only way to make Carrie happen. Just dive into the nightmare. Just go, go, go deeper, deeper, deeper into the depths of Carrie. Like prior productions, audience members made and leaked bootleg recordings of the show. Interestingly, some of them ended up making their way into the LA show's sound design. You had all of these sound effects going off of like a mix of like sirens and like um, flashbacks and all of this audio, which kind of came into fruition at the Los Angeles Theater, which I thought was really cool. Like, didn't you, didn't you like mix together like some of our bootlegs? Am I allowed to say that on front? Yeah. <laughs> so we, we used our own bootlegs to add to our production, which is awesome. So shout out to the fans for that. Brady was very aware that the writers had been keen to avoid the audience laughing at some of Carrie's more heightened moments and lines. But it was interesting where I would go through the script line by line and say, you need to trust me as the director. It's okay for her to say the line about the dirty pillows. It's like, you know, the audience expects it, they want it. And the release of that then allows them to go into the next moment with these characters. Because, you know, you you can only care about a character if they're fully drawn. You know, if they, if they are funny and ridiculous and tragic and... Um, also just very real. And most of it actually, it frankly involves Sue because Sue always was a character that never quite felt fully realized. And there, like, there was a really important moment I thought that needed to be there that was never in the show before was that you needed to see Sue get invited to the prom by Tommy and to see that that was important to her that she wasn't just giving away because she didn't want to go to the prom, but that it was self-sacrifice. And you know, we found a way in evening prayers to work that in. But um, but it was it was interesting because I think that maybe was one of the other gifts our production gave is that we really looked at Sue's material and what because Sue was the narrator as well. To achieve some of the daring staging he dreamed of, Brady knew that casting was key. Finding a cast that can bring authenticity is so important. And you know, particularly in our production, there was no room for anything that wasn't real. It just, it had to be real and you needed people that could go to that place. And I think that makes you very vulnerable as a performer and you only have your castmates to support you. We did like a preliminary casting call a year before we even, um, did our production kind of to see what was the talent pool was like in California. And Emily was the very first person that walked through the door um, for, at the open call. Brady and his team met with several actors, but couldn't get Emily's performance out of their heads. But when the final callbacks came around, she was out of town. Emily was, I think, living in Vermont at the time. And we ended up having her send in this sort of extraordinary video where she did this impromptu like in the gym in some local gym in some you know rent and prom dress you know her norma desmond take on the destruction and it was just so obvious that she had to do it it's an epic audition video we'll post it on our social channels 
a role I thought would not be difficult to cast at all, but was really difficult to cast was Sue. We looked and saw so many girls and, and we actually thought we probably were going to have to bring in an actress from New York for Sue. And then we saw Kayla and again, it just clicked. There was so much hype around this production. And like I said, I'd never gone in for it. I'd never auditioned until it was like, I think it was the last weekend of casting. I was doing a production of Les Mis at the time and I got an email from my agent and they were like, yeah, you heard about that Carrie production. Well, they can't, they're having a hard time finding a Sue Snell. Like, would you be interested in going in? Sue and Carrie, I think are a little bit are two sides of a coin. And everyone that we saw for Sue had the innocence and sort of the girl next door quality, which is part of it. But you need someone that has, that has a propensity to go dark as well. Chris and Sue could go either way, you know, with that. And what Kayla brought was, and, and the way this, the script was now envisioned that she's sort of nuts at the end of it. You don't know if she's in an asylum literally or in her own head, but you needed someone that could have that kind of naivete and innocence, but that had an edge to them. To hammer home Sue and Carrie's mysterious connection, Brady added a clever twist to the final moments of the show. As the show began, Sue was already on stage. She was sitting in a chair in the middle of the stage in a pool of light, and a few feet in front of her in a separate pool of light on the floor was Carrie's tiara. And so it was sort of instantly setting up that there was a relationship between Sue and what eventually was going to happen. And the and as Kayla described, the, the show began kind of almost like a follies kind of thing with the ghosts of the past kind of coming into the space. And by the end of the show, that prologue was sort of recreated and Sue was back in the chair and the tiara was on the floor. And Sue, who had been sort of writhing and sort of in her own like physical becoming of something, you didn't know what at the beginning of the show. But in the last moments of the show, um, she sort of goes back into that. And as she's almost coming out of it, she reaches her hand sort of out towards the tiara. And the tiara began moving across the floor towards her. And then it flew up into her hand and she caught in, like into her hand. And that was blackout. That was the end of the show. Wow. Cool, right? Ah. Is Sue becoming Carrie? Is, is this a transference of power? Is it in her mind? Or is it simply that that essence of Carrie is so drawn, is so firmly a part of her now that she, if not necessarily that she's literally becoming psychic, but she will always inhabit her. She's quite literally going to be haunted by her. The audience never quite knew exactly what it meant. As with all the productions of Carrie we've heard about, being a part of this show had quite an impact on Emily and Kayla. But I'd never, I'd never had that experience of like, like walking into an audition afterwards and hearing or having someone like look at my resume and going, oh my God, Carrie, like that Carrie, you were in that Carrie. That had never, that had never happened before. And this show, like it struck a chord with people. People remember it and the people who didn't see it, you know, there's so many questions. And it's funny that five years later down the line here, we are talking, not only talking about it, but now you have all of these like video bootlegs, like popping up. People are like sharing all of their photos from the theater. I mean, telling, sharing their ghost stories. I mean, it's, it's just like, a, it's a whole thing. It really is an experience. Playing for several months, the LA team had a unique insight into what difficulties could be experienced by a long-running production of Carrie. You know, we were discovering a lot of things about the challenge of performing the show. 
like no one no one had ever performed Carrie long enough to know how difficult it is to play the role of Carrie. Like I, Lindsay alluded, you know, to the fact that if it had run on Broadway, they they may not have made it through. And it became clear to us that if there's ever a open-ended production of Carrie, it has to have an alternate. It's just too difficult a role. And it's not even, as Emily said, it wasn't the singing, it was the screaming and the crying and all of that. So not only had the Carrie writing trio seen their show make a comeback in New York, they'd now had the chance to explore something closer to their grandly operatic original vision of it. Stafford gave them the gift of feeling comfortable to revisit the material. I think the gift our production gave was for the material to have the complexity of tone that that I think Carrie needs to work, you know, and to be enjoyable. Each restaging was allowing them to tinker with the show and explore how it played in different spaces. But they were about to physically go back to where the show began. London! And that's coming up after this short break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, many people assume that Stratford is in London and that Carrie had already had a West End run. We are here to tell you, as British people, it is not and it hasn't. There is a neighbourhood called Stratford in London, but it is actually the home of a big shopping mall and the Olympic Park, not the Royal Shakespeare Company. It's a mistake you made when trying to attend a performance of The Tempest, but found yourself lost in a very large branch of H&M. What's your point? (laughs) Anyway, surprisingly, given its roots, Carrie had never been staged here in London. But before the show opened in Stratford, which is a town about two hours north, the cast had spent several weeks rehearsing in the capital. And of course, 50% of the original cast were British, including Lindsay Hately in the lead role. So in 2016, Carrie would finally make its big return to the UK at London's intimate Southwark Playhouse. Gary Lloyd directed and choreographed the Southwark production. It's, it's actually the thing that I'm most proud of. You know, that month that we had, that glorious month in Southwark, sold out before we even lifted a finger um it was was just brilliant you know it was it was from beginning to end the casting process and my process everything was just wonderful i loved it like so many others in this epic tale gary got his hands on carry recordings at an early age and found it hard to let go but that meant he also knew about the show's notoriety so i've been obsessed with it for a very very long time and feel very much part of it the most famous flop in theater history how do we do it? So we sat on it for, for quite a while, actually. Um, and we talked through, should we tour it? No, that's a really bad idea. Should we do a fully immersive production of it? Oh, I don't think we're ready to do that yet. Um, and 
Southwark Playhouse had, had got a, you know, a really big name for itself and it had just moved, I think, to where it is now. The Southwark Playhouse is a small, flexible venue in south-east London. It, it's, a, you know, it's a black box, really. So we, we had quite a few meetings where we would go in and we would look at the space and we would work out which way we would play it. We talked about doing a traverse version of the, of the production and, you know, there were, there were lots of different ideas. We ended up with an almost in the round version um, with a sort of staircase at the back and another level where we could hang the bucket um, and, and Chris and Billy could live throughout the prom. Um, so a lot of the elements of the show were visible all the way through, um, but the audience were on, on three sides um, and we designed the set around the audience so there were windows above people's heads and I had the um, the closet was actually at the back of the auditorium so at the end of um, Evie's week um, <laughs> poor Evie but Kim I had Kim dragging Evie up um, a staircase in the middle of the auditorium and flinging her in basically what was a box that went down into behind the seats you know so it was very immersive in that respect uh, especially when we got to the blood, you know, the, the first two rows on all sides got completely splattered. <laughs> Carrie was played by Evelyn Hoskins. Oh my God. I was covered in bruises. One of the reviews mentioned my bruised body. Like I had to die on these steps at the end of the show, spoiler. Um, and then um, I used to, <laughs> because I was like, so into it I guess I would like go so limp that my body would like slide down the steps because it was covered in sticky stage blood and then I'd be like like kept in this like weird position for the last bit of the show and just trying not to move it was crazy it was, it was deceivingly physical Evelyn has one of my favorite carry the musical facts on the opening night of the Broadway production which was the 12th of May 1988 UK time I was born. Now everyone knows how old I am. She played opposite Kim Criswell in the role of Margaret. I mean, I just adored seeing that night after night and especially like those duets with Kim Criswell and Jodie um, were just a dream. They were phenomenal to, to get to perform. Yeah, evening prayers, those harmonies are just, oh, they're just stunning. And yeah, getting to do them with Kim was like amazing. We heard from Kim a few episodes back as she originally auditioned as a replacement for Barbara Cook back in the late 80s. Um, I think Kim was probably the only one that remembers, you know, Carrie in the 80s. And I think it was a big tick off her bucket list to play Margaret. You know, she really worked hard. Not that she had to work that hard because she's phenomenal, but she really, you know, she put the hours into the auditioning and um, certainly in the rehearsal room. It was really rewarding to work with both her and Evie on all of those scenes. You know, when I did the inform- when I when I did the homework on Carrie was when the book came out when I was a teenage girl. I read it. You know, I read it when it first came out and I didn't realize it until I went back to read it again, which I did for for the production of Carrie. Um, 
It was his first book. It's, it's not, because you think it's a silly little teen horror movie, musical. It's not. It's, it's, it's got a lot more roots than that. It's got a lot more depth and a lot more classical roots. And the characters are fascinating. Margaret White is fascinating. And so, I mean, Carrie is too, but, but I mean, I wasn't asked to play her. I was asked to play Margaret White. And of course, playing, you know, playing the person who's the villain of the piece, who's kind of crazy and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, there's so much there to be mined. There's yeah. so much. I mean, the, the idea that she, you know, that, that she gets to a point, because she, of course, doesn't think she's the villain. She thinks she has been entrusted with the job of saving the world from evil. And, and it, it's, it's Old Testament. It's, you know, it's, it's Abraham and his sons. It's, it's that. It's, you will sacrifice your child to save the world. There was a key moment in the show that defined the role for Kim. But I mean, everything that she does, she thinks she is, she is doing it as a divine, you know, as a bit of divine instruction. She's being told she must do this and she's the only one who can do it. So that's why the number in the second half is so just gut-wrenching. The realization number where she says, I have to do this. God is telling me I have to do this. There's no other way around it. I have to kill her. You know, that's horrifying. Can you imagine if you really were in that situation and you had, you had, to, you, you, you were very, very sure that you had to kill your own child because you had birthed the Antichrist or, you know, something like that. So, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's not silly. It's not silly. It's, it's genuine heart, heart wrenching drama. How did she prepare for such an intense performance every night? You got to be prepared. Your head's got to be in the right place. So, so I needed to be able to just be left in my own little bubble so I could be in the state I needed to be in emotionally to go out and do these things. Jodie Jacobs played Miss Gardner. The first British Miss Gardner. Oh, yes. Good mm. spot. She's more of a mother. She's a, more of a, 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 a um, conventional matriarch figure than Carrie's mum is to mum. I've had too many of these. <laughs> so, yeah, in that respect, it was it was... A, a more of a mum character, but yeah. It, other than learning the stuff beforehand and reading the book so that we knew we were coming at it, just so you know you're not doing anything that's a huge departure. Jodie remembers the speedy rehearsal process. It was just very, very, everyone says this, oh my God, it was just like a really good team of people, but it just was. It just was a really nice atmos. We were all pleased to be there. Gary knew what he was doing and we trusted him very quickly. He showed himself to be... A, lead, a brilliant leader, I think. It was, for, for my money, in my experience, one of one of the most incredible rehearsal pe- periods. We were in and out. Gary knew exactly what he wanted. Everything was scheduled to the last minute. We in, never, in 20 years of being in musical theatre, have I ever finished a rehearsal period early. We had that last day. We had a day of just, he did. we did an entire day of, of improvisation. And it was the best where previous productions had avoided overtly dating the show, Gary deliberately set it very clearly in the present day. Yeah, and Gary Gary Lloyd, the director, like brought like cell phones into it and stuff like that, which obviously weren't written in, but were so easily put in and just immediately made it feel more um, contemporary. Like Stafford Arima, Gary approached his production through the lens of high school bullying. And we, we did a lot of research on bullying in America and kids, you know, committing suicide. And it, it's a very real topic. And I think people who can sort of see past the cult side of it and really, you know, kind of plug into the music and the reality of what these, these storylines are about, 
especially nowadays, I think, where mental health is such a big issue and domestic violence and relationships. Um, it's almost more prevalent now than it was in the 80s. You know, so I think people connect to it on different levels, you know. We loved this production. The intimacy of the space was used to great effect. So it was it was um, sort of thrust stage. So you had like the back wall where the band were and then you had sort of three sides of the audience. So directly in front and then two on the side. Um, and then in the like middle bank of seats, um, up the stairs, there was a like a trap door that during Eve was weak, Kim, um, would open and put me into and then slam down. And then in Southwark Playhouse Cold Shower Glory, I would have to crawl under the seating um, with a gorgeous stage manager um, with a torch. And then I'd come out the other. I mean, it was intense. <laughs> but so worth it. And I remember one night being dragged up this, um, dragged up the aisle of the seating and, and Rowan Atkinson was sat there. I was like, <laughs> Jodie felt that the intimacy added to the tension for the audience. The, the, the build actually was the build. And like you said, musically, and, and you, you're, the build happens also because the space is small and everyone knows what's going to happen. It becomes palpable from the audience. And I don't know what theatre alchemy that is, and I'll never understand it. And I don't want to know. But especially when, you, when you're in small spaces, you can feel that behind you. You feel it, you feel it. If you don't feel it, you're in the wrong job. You, you feel it. It was just after the blood drop. That's when chaos reigned. Once again, the writing team took the opportunity to evolve their show. I worked very closely with Larry and Michael particularly. Um, and we got into this groove where, you know, we had lots of meetings, phone calls really, uh, before going into rehearsal. So we made some changes before rehearsal. And then as we got into rehearsal, um, there were certain things that came up and Kim and Evie particularly, you know, had, had lots to say and we'd workshop stuff and I'd go back to them in the evening um, on American time and we'd, we'd go through it and they were really open um, and very generous with it all. And, you know, I'd, I'd sort of gone to them at the beginning of the process and said, look, you know, I love what you've done. I love what you've done with the revamp of Broadway, but how about we look at it? a little bit more. What changes were made this time? We changed Why Not Me um, and there was a bit of resistance I remember but I really wanted to interrupt the end of that song with a shadow of Margaret because I knew the space um, and I you know I wanted to scare the crap out of everybody basically. I really wanted to interrupt Why Not Me with that shadow of Margaret so that there's this, this kind of jubilant song where she's getting ready and she feels like a princess and then suddenly we remember the world that she's living in. That was one of the big, bigger changes, I think. I, you know, I had asked them to put in the Bible verses at the beginning of it. Yeah, that was, that was my idea. And the writers said, well, why? Everybody knows those Bible verses. I said, no, they don't. We're in England. No, they don't. Don't assume that. I think we need to lay it out. Let's, let's, do, let's quote the Bible verses. Let's quote the Bible verse that says, you must, you must do this. Um, uh, you know, she shall be, she, uh, a witch shall be killed or whatever it is. And so putting, just saying that every night would send me off. And then I would hear, you know, that, that would make me, me break. And the audience, I would hear them start to go, oh. oh. And then they'd, I, I could hear them crying because they were right there with me. 
So that was a shared experience that was kind of wonderful. As a Carrie superfan himself, Gary was pleased that the new version of the show nods to the original while reducing the disparity in the styles of the different worlds of the show. I do think the new version does marry those two worlds a lot better. It does feel a lot more cohesive than the original. Um, And I think um, Dean and Michael did a brilliant job of bringing so much of that original high school stuff out of Don't Waste the Moon and, and some of those songs that disappeared, but a lot of the song actually went into other songs, you know, and they made it work elsewhere. And I thought that was, that was super clever, you know, but without knowing both versions, you wouldn't know that. As the first production on British soil in nearly 30 years, was the audience filled with fans? Certainly, we, when we started, the people that came the first few performances were the people who had been just dying to see a production of Carrie. And after that, the word spread and it became a very mixed audience of people who had heard good things and didn't really know what to expect, but had very nice expectations about it. And I think, so it was a very, very mixed bag of people. You know, it wasn't just the usual theater queens and, you know, uh, and huge Carrie fans. It it wasn't just that. It was, (laughs) you guys. (laughs) In all the press leading up to the show, like in the the Metro and Evening Standard and things, I remember reading like, they were just focusing on the fact that it was such a flop. I don't, I don't get really affected by that sort of thing. So it wasn't like a worry. You know, I think people came expecting to have a bit of a laugh and, you know, to walk away, being able to write something um, scathing and scoffing and, and quite comical. And they were, they were all surprised and they all wrote, you know, really lovely things about what we all did, you know. Um, and I think that's because... The writing um, had developed so much, I, you know, and I think a lot of people, they hadn't sort of paid attention to the off-Broadway version as, as much as the original Broadway version. Um, so there was a bit of a surprise there. But I think, you know, we all took it very seriously and we wanted to put on a serious piece of theatre. You know, we weren't putting on a camp horror flick. We were putting on a, a serious story about... Um, you know, a girl that was being bullied at home and at school and happens to have these incredible telekinetic powers. Oh, for me, honestly, it is probably the highlight of my career so far. It was a dream. It really was. It's just, it's just such a great role. In fact, there were some very special audience members at one performance, a reunion of some of the original British cast members. How did it feel for original Carrie, Lindsay Haightley, to have the show back on her home turf? Got to be absolutely honest, when, when it was first being talked about that it was being remounted, I really wasn't comfortable with it. But, and, and I'm not proud to say it, but it was because I didn't want someone or something to be successful when it had caused me so much pain. Not, not proud about that, but that's how I felt. Why should someone else get the glory of something that actually had, had actually really, um, you know, affected me as a person? It's made me what I am, good and bad, but it has made me what I am as, a, as an adult. And, uh, and so I was really uncomfortable with it. But we went to see it um, and, uh, and actually it was, it was really cathartic. It was, it was the most... Um, useful thing that could have happened, yeah. um, and and actually since then it's it's sort of almost allowed us to to move on and and celebrate it in a way. 
Original ensemble member Suzanne Thomas remembers the wave of emotion experienced when she saw her scenes from 1988 reenacted for the first time. We went all together and we couldn't hardly stop laughing all the way through. We felt so bad, not because of their show, but because of the memories. And we were just going, oh, the prom! I remembering all this stuff that happened. It was just like this... Oh, I mean, it, honestly, it was just the funniest thing. Things that we couldn't remember that we, you know, that we hadn't remembered. Then when the music was playing, it just all flood over you. And we were just, honestly, we were just like hiding in the sort of back, you know, feeling like we didn't want them to think we were laughing at them, but we just couldn't contain ourselves. It was just sweating. We were sweating, trying not to laugh. Anyway, anyway. What was it like for Gary and the team? Yeah, I was really nervous that night, actually. Um, and they all stayed and they had a chat with everybody at the end and they were just crying and just so, you know, they, they loved it. Once again, the dreams of a humble Carrie superfan and obsessive bootleg collector had come true. Those bootlegs, those pirate copies, those cassettes, I can still see them. I've probably got them in the loft. Um, you know, they were in a bin liner and I remember just listening to them on loop and thinking, I really want to direct this. And I, I was only 17, 18. You know, so to actually come full circle and be able to do that and sort of have the legacy of, of being part of turning the, the flop thing around is, is huge. It's, you know, like I say, it's one of my proudest moments. These are three very different productions in terms of size, style and approach. But there's one thing that connects them all. Buckets full of realistic, sticky blood. Perhaps inspired by the general crappiness of that original 80s attempt at an impressive-looking blood drop, all three directors were determined to give their carries a good soaking. And that, that, was, that was my first proviso. I said, if we're going to do this, we're doing the blood. We're not doing lighting, we're not doing confetti, we are doing the blood. Um, and we spent a long time taking that off-site. We had a fantastic um, special effects advisor, Jeremy Chernick, that came in. Um, we did lots of experiments with poor Evie, who had to stand underneath it every time. Uh, and apart from one night, I think we got her every time. She she got covered. Yeah, it missed her once, I think. It was a swimming pool. Like, it, it, you were paddling in it by the end of the show. I don't understand how that happened. Listen, you just need to make sure you have lots of washing machines, because, oh my God, the wash-up after that show... I mean, you know, when we first opened, we had to, we were kind of like, well, what do we do with all this blood all over us at the end of the show? I mean, we'll drip it everywhere. I said, look, just get a great big tin wash basin, you know, just a big tub and put it in the wings and fill it with water so we can go just kind of hose ourselves down before we ever leave backstage. And so that's what they did. We just like going, you know, <laughs> get as much off as we could. <laughs> Some nights, like, I'd wake up and my pillow would have stage blood on it because it's like gone in my ear or something but I'm so glad because like I know some productions use like lighting and things for that moment and like I got to a point in the run where I'd like I'd look forward to it and like the challenge for me was to keep that like not knowing like that unexpected moment of when it hit because because every, like you say, everyone knows how the story goes and they're waiting for that iconic moment. So I imagine like, if I was in the audience, I'd be watching to see if like that person was prepping for like a bucket of cold stage blood to be dropped on them. It was certainly impactful for the audience, just inches away from a blood-soaked Evelyn. Someone fainted once. Whilst 
whilst I was like dying, I was like dying on the stairs and I could hear behind me like this sort of commotion. And I was thinking, oh my God, someone's leaving to get their train. And then after they were like, oh yeah, somebody fainted. Cause there was a lot of blood as well. And it ended up like, cause at first when it drops, it doesn't look that much, but then as time went on, it sort of just like spread. Cause someone said to me, cause I exited after the blood drop and then there was a Kim, Kim had a song or like a scene or something. And then I came, I re-enter and ever, like a lot of people were like, oh, did you put more blood on? And I'm like, no, it just. How did these productions get around the original claim from Terry Hands that it was impossible to soak a microphone with blood and still hear the song? By covering it with a hand. Oh, well that sounds simple now. It's, it's not super practical, but what we did was I had like a, I can't remember, I had like a, like a look or something and then I like put my head down and like had to cover the mic anyway and sometimes it would still get in there. But it was, it was, it worked and they had a dress that was already like bloodied. There was like four different dresses that I had. So I like had one that I changed into on stage. I had one that got blood every night and then there was one that was already bloodied. So as soon as I got dumped, I would like come off stage, they would unzip it and they would put on the dress that was like dry but bloody. And, like, the color kind of changed a lot. So, like, they wanted a dress that would, like, have the color that they wanted it to look like for the end of, for the, end of the show. And then I would literally, like, run my – one of my really good friends was the assistant director. And she, um, she would, like, literally, like, have to peel the bloody dress off of – like, even the dry one because it was just so sticky and it would be all over me. She would literally have to, like, peel it off. And then there were showers downstairs, so I would shower after every show. Over in Seattle, the biggest problem was the slippiness – it's hard to control liquid on stage. And once the liquid's there, I did a leap of faith on Broadway and, you know, there's a big rainstorm at the end of the show. I've actually done a lot of shows with water in it and water's just like the worst thing. Liquid is just the worst thing to work with on stage because once it's there, you can't, there's no getting rid of it. With these three large-scale productions, Carrie had entered the mainstream, but there was one big unexpected twist in the tale. Here's Shelley Hodgson from the original cast. It was my daughter that started singing something from from Carrie, and I had a freak out and went, "What on?" And I burst into her room and, "What are you singing?" Kind of gibberish. And she just said, "I know it's on Riverdale. What the heck's Riverdale?" It's on Riverdale, and they did the whole of Carrie thing going on, and she's singing them songs one after the other. And I went, "Okay, I'm having a bit of a parallel, you know, Twilight Zone moment here." And then I kind of watched the episodes and thought, just on my own, you know, like you're on your own, and you kind of go, "I need to connect with some of the others because this is a very surreal moment." And that was three years ago, maybe not even that. And you're going, "Hang on a minute, this is thirty odd years ago. This is what is going on." Riverdale is, of course, a film noir-style teen mystery drama based on the classic Archie Comics universe. It's set in a high school full of impossibly beautiful people in their mid to late 20s with 0% body fat, all intent on either being hideously mean or just killing each other. In the US, it airs on the CW network, but also found an enormous global following on Netflix. Riverdale's showrunner, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, grew up as a theatre and comic book lover in Washington, D.C. And I saw a production of Macbeth, which, 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 which you know, was buckets of blood like Carrie. And and it really, it, it was sort of like a horror play uh, with witches and murders and 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 uh, uh, sex and violence and everything. And it, it, it kind of like opened my eyes to theater. And I, I became a 
a theater junkie in high school doing plays and and seeing plays um, um, in Washington, D.C. His love for telling stories soon became an obsession, which led him to discover a certain musical. I was always writing. I was always writing stories. So though it would be a few more years before I landed on the, the career to try to be a playwright, uh, I, I was a, a theater junkie uh, uh, going to New York from Washington, D.C., taking the train up to, to see shows uh, when I was in high school. I think when I first heard about Car- that they were doing Carrie, I was also a, a huge Stephen King junkie. And I read some interview with him probably in like 1985 or six or something. And, and he just casually said, oh, and we're doing a musical version of Carrie. And, and I, you know, my, like I immediately sat up and like, I got a chill and I thought, oh my God, what a, what a, what a great idea for a show. Like so many before him, he soon became obsessed with finding out as much as he could about this new show, which had just opened across the pond in England. And I, you know, of course, read all about it and read, you know, that, that a piece of scenery almost killed uh, uh, the lead and that it got, you know, terrible reviews, but standing ovations. And, and it, it became kind of an obsession with me uh, uh, seeing Carrie. But Roberto discovered that fate can be cruel. Taking the train from D.C. to New York, he made a tragic discovery upon arriving at the Virginia Theatre. And, you know, I went to it and the show had closed, but the marquee was still up. And it was just, I had missed it by like two weeks. No one, you know, it was just, it was just brutal. And I was trying to like get in and see, maybe I'll see the set. And they were like, no, you can't come in. Like, like it was, it was sort of like, yeah. Just two weeks. I know, devastating. <gasps> but his love for Stephen King's story and his early obsession with the musical never left him. Some years later, having found success as a writer of stage and screen, it was another of our favourite flops that led Roberto to his first professional engagement with Carrie. While I was working on... Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark as part of the team to revamp it, I had a meeting with the head of MGM Movies, uh, this gentleman named John Glickman, and he, I had been on his radar, and it's interesting because we went to the, I had the meeting, and the meeting was actually to talk about doing a remake of Poltergeist. So, you know, we talked for about two hours and, and uh, 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 it was all about Poltergeist, how we would re- redo Poltergeist. And I pitched him Poltergeist. And at the, at literally at the very end of the meeting, he said, oh, this is great. You know, we're, we're so happy. You know, we're, I'm so excited that you're excited about um, Poltergeist. You know, if you weren't excited, I was going to mention this other thing. And I said, oh, what's the other thing? And he said, oh, well, we want to do a remake of Carrie. His desire to work on the Poltergeist remake was quickly cast aside. Oh, no, no, I, I, I'd much rather do the, the remake of Carrie than, than the remake of Poltergeist. And, and he was sort of like, okay. And then, and then, you know, from there, I was hired very, very quickly to do, to do Carrie. I think part of it was I had just adapted the Stephen King novel, The Stand, for comic books, for Marvel Comics. And I just loved the movie of Carrie and, uh, you know, obviously loved the, by then I, I knew the musical by then. 
And, but I just, I think it, in terms of a perfect story, the, the, the story of Carrie, the, the, the revenge, the aspiration, the villains, the heroes, it's, it's, it's almost like the great Gatsby sort of of horror novels. It's very short and it's kind of perfect. And, and, and you don't want to fuck around too much with it because it's, 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 it's just perfectly constructed, you know? Roberto wanted to go back to Stephen King's original structure in which Carrie's story is told through the perspectives of different people looking back on her murderous prom night. But the movie's director had other ideas. You know, the director that, that, that MGM hired, you know, didn't want to do that and, 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 and really wanted to do basically the De Palma version. That started a very tra- traumatizing development, you know, process that, that, that watched my screenplay, as happened so many times in movies, totally be disassembled. In a tale that echoes the fate of the original script of the musical, Roberto found his work being ripped apart, to the extent that scenes from Brian De Palma's original movie were simply being transplanted into this new version. The movie stars Chloe Moretz as Carrie and Julianne Moore as her mother, but despite the starry cast, Roberto feels it was a wasted opportunity. I think it could have been something really different and special, you know, but 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 it was it it did sort of you know fulfill my 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 dream of working on Carrie sort though though it became a little bit of a nightmare. Roberto's other love was comic books, and in particular the classic American series based on the adventures of Archie Andrews, set in the fictional town of Riverdale. I was determined to do an Archie movie, and I spent years trying to make that happen, um, and and then. I, we started to try to do an Archie television show and, and in, uh, you know, unlike the Carrie movie, the development of Riverdale was, was great because it was sort of like, it started as a very kind of traditional coming of age, uh, almost, almost overly earnest uh, teen show. And, and in the development, it, it sort of became a darker, weirder, a uh, 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 show that that was that was actually about the tension between sort of the 1950s idealized Archie comics and a much pulpier noir uh, a crime aesthetic that and 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 that's where the show lived best when it mixed both of those. Originally, Roberto had a different vision for Riverdale. I had spent three years working on on Glee though. And when I started developing Riverdale, I thought, oh, well, this will be a musical like Glee. Music was a part of the fabric of Riverdale. Um, In the second season, uh, in the first season, we had 13 episodes. In the second season, we had 22. So we we had the room to do uh, special episodes that were, that were, that were a li- even more off the beaten path from 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 the typical Riverdale episode, and we wanted to do a musical, and and we we started talking about musicals to do, and and you know, me almost immediately my mind went to Carrie, um, and and the reason it went there is because it was a high school show, it was a show about high school students, but. Apart from his personal love for Carrie, why did Roberto choose this somewhat obscure show for Riverdale's first ever musical episode? It, it was a cult, you know, show, and it, it had a lot of um, 
violence and horror, which which felt like, oh, you know, they're, they're in a in a more traditional high school, earnest 1950s, we might have done Bye Bye Birdie as the musical uh, or, or, or Grease as the musical. And it, it felt like given the darker sort of themes and the aesthetic of the show, oh, you know, Carrie would be great. In the episode, the personality traits of Riverdale students echo those of the characters in Carrie as the school stages the show as their annual musical. We had a lot of the same archetypes as Carrie does. Carrie has uh, the good girl, Sue Snell, the evil mean girl, Chris Hargensen, the, the, the sweet boyfriend, Tommy Ross, the evil boyfriend, Billy uh, Nolan, uh, uh, the kindly teacher, and, and you know, Betty uh, on Riverdale, Betty Cooper and her mother had a, a very fraught relationship, nowhere near the level of, of fraught that Margaret and Carrie had. So when we, when we actually started trying to fit this together, it was like, oh, wow, this slots in perfectly. The genre-busting episode called A Night to Remember introduced the musical and its songs to an entirely new audience. Riverdale would go on to make more musical episodes based on Heathers and Hedwig and the Angry Inch. For the creators of the musical, it was a unique opportunity to get their little show that could in front of millions of fans from a new generation. They gave Roberto and his writing team the freedom to make adjustments to the songs to make them work in the Riverdale universe. I believe that the um uh, the 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 um, songwriters of the musical were really excited about it, and and you know we've done we've done other subsequent musicals, and and I will say that in those musicals when we try to do little tweaks like change your character name, or even change like you know a, a song if a song in the musical was a guy singing about a girl if we were changing to a girl singing about a guy you know we said well can we change uh, her to him and and they said no whereas whereas on Carrie and it, and it was it was which was fine it was totally fine uh but on Carrie I, I remember that there was a lot more enthusiasm like like even when we we, you know, we we were approached to put out a, a vinyl record for Carrie, the the Riverdale episode of Carrie. Uh, everyone was ecstatic when we were approached to do the vinyl of of another high school musical. They said no because for fear that it might cannibalize their sales of some other thing or who even knows what. For Roberto, it was a thrill to finally work on a version of the show he'd obsessed over as a young man. At an industry party, he was approached by Dean Pitchford. Oh, by the way, I I wrote the the the, so, the songs for Carrie, and we just loved the Riverdale episode, and it and it was like, oh, it was it felt so great, and it felt cathartic because I'd had such a miserable time on the remake of Carrie that in a way it was like taking back my love of Carrie, and and and. And, you know, l- let me say this. I haven't seen the remake of Carrie since it was in the movies. Uh, but I've seen the Riverdale episode of Carrie, you know, you know, millions of times, it feels like. 
The episode led to plenty of YouTube searches from young fans desperate for more Carrie in their lives. And that's brought more attention to the stars of the various high-profile productions, such as Keaton Whittaker. I also think that Riverdale obviously doing it was been... So that's that's been the reason that it's come up for me so much because... I I like have so many like all of my followers on Instagram are from like people seeing my video of Carrie on YouTube. I like didn't know it's I always joke that it's like the one thing I've done like bigger things in my career, but like that is the one thing that has followed me <laughs> like the whole time that I've like been in theater. It's like oh my god, this one kid came up to me at like a da- a party that I was at. He was like, "This is so weird, but so niche, but like you look like this girl Keaton Whitaker who does Carrie." And I was like, "That I am. That is me." And he was like, oh my God, that's so weird. Is she pleased that the social media generation have claimed Carrie as their own? I think it's cool, honestly. I think like, I think it's any chance that like musical theater is like being like accessed. It's funny to see like comments on my stuff that's like, oh my God, it's just kind of, it's like kind of sweet to me. I'm kind of like, oh, that's cool that like these kids who like never would be like exposed to musical theater at all, like are exposed to it on like a larger platform. So I think it's like, whatever, cool, great, you know? (laughs) And if you're doing, like, if you're seeing that and then Googling it and, like, learning more about it, I think it's, like, awesome. We asked Roberto if he felt he was finally done with his carry journey. I suppose that there is a universe where there's a movie version of the musical, which, of course, I would love to work on. That said, I feel, as you said, healed by my carry experience through Riverdale. And and I'm really happy that, that people that the creators of the musical liked it and 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 were supportive of it. So so it no longer feels like my Moby Dick that I'm still searching for. And, but anytime I encounter Carrie the musical, I'm I'm as a, even as a fan going to see it, I'm 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 you know, I'm ecstatic. I'm really I just love that show. Although the writers probably never imagined they'd hear it back when their show closed in 1988, Carrie the musical has turned into a global phenomenon. And on Broadway and the West End, a generation of new musical theatre writers and composers have laced their teenage high school-themed shows with the essence of Carrie. Here's Lindsay Hately. There are so many things. I went to see Heathers and I was like, it's Carrie. Yes. There is, it's, it's all there. There are so many different elements in shows that you go... It was it was a first of its kind and, and actually it was. It was ahead of its time. Perhaps that was always Carrie's problem. Was the show a trailblazer that was just too early to find its perfect audience? Was the material just too controversial for the Broadway stage? Or was the team fundamentally wrong for this show? Or maybe we're just looking into this a bit too hard. Maybe. Next week, in our final episode. A post-mortem. And I think that's why I used to, I used to get quite upset by how hard a time Terry got, because I actually think that... You know, yes, it, it wasn't um, it wasn't right, and I don't think that it, you know, as a director, that wasn't his forte. That wasn't where he was comfortable. A flop means it's com- like commercially hated and financially not rewarded, and and my show was both of those things. Of course, the theaters always had flops, um, and they've they've always had people who take some sort of pleasure uh, in you know other people's misfortunes. <laughs> But I think Carrie was the was a turning point in that. Don't you agree with that? Who was sleeping at that wheel? <laughs> that they didn't catch these things until it was much too late. And that fascinates me about Carrie. 
um, because it was just such a malfunction on that level. Say the 10 most popular musicals or successful musicals in Broadway history, they are all on paper actually horrible ideas. Like Hamilton on paper is like the worst idea you ever heard. And so is Evita and Annie and Katz and Les Mis. You know, there was so much about it with the talent that was on the stage and some of the musical writing that, you know, the potential of it, which is why it won't go away, was phenomenal. Because, you know, the one thing you can never do in theatre, and I think when theatre is forgetful, is when you're boring. But we were not boring. Thank you for all your amazing feedback so far. It's been so great to hear from friends of Carrie from all over the world. Out for Blood is a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. For more information about us and the podcast, please visit us online at bpn.fm slash outforblood. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you downloaded from. And don't forget to subscribe. And we continue to fill our social channels with great pictures and videos from the show at Out for Blood Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Out for Blood Pod on Twitter. Out for Blood was hosted and produced by me, Holly Morgan. And me, Chris Adams. Sound engineering and editing by Tom Moores. Paddy Jervis is our audio consultant. Original music by Odin Ornhill-Marson. And artwork by Rebecca Pitt. Thanks this week to Lewis Hobson, Alice Ripley and Keaton Whitaker from The Seattle Show, Brady Schwind, Kayla Parker and Emily Lopez from The LA Production, and Gary Lloyd, Evelyn Hoskins, Jodie Jacobs and Kim Criswell from The Southwark Playhouse Show. And of course, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, Chief Creative Officer at Archie Comics and the writer and showrunner of Riverdale. Thanks also to Lindsay Haightley, Suzanne Thomas, Shelley Hodgson, and Jeffrey McCann. Hey, Tom. Yes. Come on, Tom. I want to see sweat. I keep on looking, but I ain't seen it yet. <laughs> the more you suffer, the tougher you get. So come on, Tom. Work, 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 work. Seriously, please do work because we're sort of behind schedule on episode 10. I do have an actual job, you know. Love you. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. <laughs>